What? Love you too, man. Appreciate it. I know, Jeremy. I was I was despairing of life when you said that, man. So appreciate the encouragement. All right, guys. Let's. Uh, it's that time to get into the Word together. So let's uh, bow our heads and our hearts and ask for God's help. Well, Father, thank you again uh, for your grace shown toward us, your love, your mercy, all your provision. Lord, one thing we can remind ourselves afresh every Lord's Day is that we should have thankful hearts because you have spoken to us. You've revealed yourself to us in your precious word so we can know you, so we can walk with you, so we can trust in you. And so that as a church, both corporately and in our lives individually as Christians, we can live for your glory and your glory alone. To that end, Father, we open your word this morning. May it be a blessing and encouragement to us. May we be reminded to grow in the true grace of God and to stand firm against unbelief, against all that arrays itself against the knowledge of God. Please help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, go ahead and uh, open your Bibles to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. We will continue our study. Um, <clears throat> kind of in the middle of it, we ended our last message kind of in the fashion of landing a bush plane somewhere in the outer banks of Alaska. So we will continue where we are um, and and carefully take off again. So our text this morning is going to be found in the book of 2 Peter. And our verses are 11 or 10, rather, through 16, starting with daring. So go ahead and find your place and follow along as I read. Daring self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey speaking with a voice of a man restrained the madness of a prophet." <coughs> The title of this sermon, same from last week, is Posers, because that's what we're talking about. We are talking about false prophets, those who pretend to be the mouthpiece of the living God, even as the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet are there for other nefarious reasons. They, not, they do not truly speak for Him. They have spoken, thus saith the Lord, when the Lord has saith no such thing. And so we want to be on guard and vigilant against those who would masquerade as prophets and preachers of the truth. Of course, this is not a, this is not a very PC thing to do. We have to remind ourselves of that often. It's not very nice. 
And, and we have to have the same mindset as Peter, because that's how he's instructing us. We have to have a very strong stance toward those who would come in and twist and pervert the gospel of Christ and lead his people astray. God takes it very seriously, and so we must as well. The subheading, of course, is of character, conduct, consequence, and correction. And of course, we fit all that in there because that is what this text, uh, verses 10 through 16, is covering. What are these false prophets like? What is their attitude, right? What, what, what characterizes them? Secondly, we find their conduct. Well, what do they do? Because what, what they do is going to inevitably flow from their character. And of course, we see consequence as well. The cons- there will be consequences. They will reap what they sow. We find an example of this in verse 13, if you want to look there. But they suffer wrong as the wages of doing wrong. So if often the question comes up, why do false teachers get away with this? With their false teaching. We find that they do for a while, but only for a while. But eventually, they reap the full consternation of the living God. There is consequence for what they do, and it often comes in an ironic fashion. They suffer wrong as the wages of doing just that, of doing wrong. And fourthly, is correction. They will be put in their place, that is to say. They will be rebuked. The truth will expose them, and often we find that the truth will be spoken to them. They themselves will know when they are corrected. And we find that in the very end of this passage in verse 16, speaking of Balaam, son of Beor, he received a rebuke for his own transgression from none other than a donkey. That's the correction. And I think all of these form a very important and identifiable pattern, not only in Scripture, but throughout church history. This is, this is a pattern that, is, that can be very well seen, very well identified, and of course it is the responsibility of, ch- of the church standing on the Word of God to apply these measures, to seek to find out the character and conduct of those who proclaim themselves to be preachers of the gospel, and also to warn them of the consequences should they twist the doctrine of the truth once for all delivered to the saints. And also there is correction, there is rebuke, there is warning. Yes, the church has the prerogative, though it may seem seem unloving and ungracious, to put false teachers in their place. It's not only suggested, it is a command to expose that unrighteousness and to call it to account, even if it means putting it out of the church, because this is the very thing Peter is dealing with. That these teachers need to be exposed and removed, for they stand under God's judgment, and we definitely do not want to give that any quarter within the church. There is a time for correction. There is a time for putting your arm around side, or around, alongside the, the errant brother and calling him to repent. But if a person, on the other hand, comes in and gains influence and the, and the platform for teaching and instructing the flock of God, and they become purveyors of false doctrines, then this judgment has to be dealt with more swiftly and with greater severity for the well-being of God's flock. So we left off last time, somewhere in the middle of this passage. I want to continue, I think, the best place would be 
uh, verse 13, we talked about this, this consequence of suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, and then it goes on to say, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. That is, there is a shamelessness to the sins that they commit. They, they revel. And it was mentioned last Lord's Day that one should probably not even revel in the nighttime, and yet they do it in broad daylight. There is a shamelessness that accompanies their sin in their leadership and in their personal lives in which they have no shame. And the reason they have no shame is because of this fundamental denial of the retribution that Jesus Himself is going to visit not only upon them, but their entire belief system. Remember that Jesus is going to show up in this event, this parousia, in which He judges not only Jerusalem and apostate Judaism, but the whole old order. This judgment signifies that the new order under the Lord Jesus Christ, this new creation, is going to have preeminence and that it is going to gain ground wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. So before we even go any further, look at the pattern though that, 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 that arises as Peter is warning his people. Daring self-willed, they do not tremble. Right? Verse 12, but these there is a very real distinction going on. Yes, sometimes we like to say, well, it's not us and them, but sometimes it is. They, these, right? Verse 13, verse 13 they counted a pleasure. They are stains and blemishes. They have gone astray, right? They carouse with you. Yes, he's speaking of them. These, are, these people are not truly a part of your community. They pretend to be but I am talking not about you, but about they. But they are in effect distinct. They are cut off. They are not truly a part of the church. They are not real shepherds. They are rather wolves in sheep's clothing. And there are several things, of course, which demonstrate that that is true. But they revel in broad daylight. And of course, we talked about the fact that they are stains and blemishes rather than being pure, rather than being, as it were, a spotless living sacrifice cleansed by the blood of Christ, they are stains among the people. They have a corrupting influence. They revel, it says, still in verse 13, in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Of course, we kind of flew by that last Lord's Day, but this whole issue of them carousing is not what we not what we typically think of, of the modern usage of the word carousing. The context here dictates that what is happening in this carousing is actually the love feast. What we formerly know as communion or a fellowship meal. But they participate in that in such a way to where they are stains and blemishes and a corrupting influence on the, on the very activity. But they are operating in that fashion during the love feast. And we think, wow, what, what, what deception is going on here for them to actually do that? Remember Jude 1.12, we talked about this text last, last time. He says, these are men, speaking of the same types of men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear. And let me tell you something, when you understand the full scope and even theological and devotional significance of the love feast, it would be a bizarre thing to go in there as a false teacher and have no fear. You know you have truly lost the fear of God. When there is no fear of God before your eyes, when you actually go into a love feast with a deceitful heart, 
When you, when you take this fellowship meal, which is supposed to be a symbol of our, of our covenant with one another, of our life in the new covenant under the Lord Jesus Christ, as a means of grace, as a time to refresh ourselves and encourage one another. See, all the encouragement that is meant to happen in this time, this is one of the reasons we, we do this every Lord's Day. We believe it is, it is a means of grace that Jesus Himself is present with us in a special way when we enjoy that activity with one another and when our hearts are prepared. So it would be a very scandalous and wicked thing for a false teacher to use that as an opportunity to divide and conquer. In fact, he would be on very dangerous ground, even according to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. Remember, people were profaning that sacred ground, and as a result, they were falling asleep. They were getting sick. Some of them were dying because they were not judging the body rightly. I would say that the body means the body of Christ. They were misjudging the church. And rather than using it as a time to love and serve their fellow member of the church, they were abusing that time and, of course, being disciplined by it. So you have to have a lot of chutzpah to go into an environment like that with the purpose of deception and with the purpose of grabbing power. But that is something that is common to them. Otherwise, Peter would not acknowledge it, but it seems to have taken root within various churches. And then he goes on to say this, verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery. See, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Okay. This, is another, this is another characteristic of them, which, re, which expresses the very intent of their heart. Eyes full of of adultery. That's an interesting image to conjure up. Eyes full of adultery. On one hand, I think that speaks to the fact that all they see are opportunities, right? We've talked about the fact that these false teachers seem to have, uh, seem to be characterized by sexual immorality, sensuality. They look for ways to take advantage of the people of God in that, in that fashion. Eyes full of adultery. That is their very vision for the church. Eyes full of adultery. And I think this speaks to more than simply preying on women in the congregation. When you talk about adultery, we think of spiritual adultery. Now remember, in this, in this passage, and we'll see this in greater detail as we move through it, Peter draws several parallels between these false teachers and apostate Israel. Even apostate Israel of the Old Testament. So there's more here than simply physical adultery. He is exposing this bent or this inclination that false teachers have toward building unholy alliances. That could be unholy alliances with other false teachers, with other apostate churches, even with an apostate form of government. It's trying to link the church of God to that which is unbelieving, to that which is apostate. So it's being yoked with unbelief as long as there is a personal benefit to be reaped. Remember, greed is something that overwhelmingly characterizes false teachers. It's fundamental to their character. And of course, Peter is warning us to watch out because this is a way of life for them. Think about this eyes full of adultery, something that was described uh, of Israel 
in very profound fashion. In Jeremiah 3, we read this, and I think this is what Peter is is, uh, pulling up in his mind when he references this. In Jeremiah 3, verse 6, the prophet says this, Then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, again, this is a Think of this, Josiah the king. This ended up being um, a time of great reform because Josiah walked with the Lord. So he says this, Have you seen what faithless Israel did? She went up on every high hill and every green tree, and she was a harlot there. So you think about this. Everywhere in Israel, this was going on. Spiritual harlotry, spiritual unfaithfulness. I thought, after she has done all these things, she will return to me. It's like, Get it out of your system, right? But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. And I saw that for all the adultery of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. So Israel's cut off. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear. So you see what's going on here is that Israel was judged before the kingdom of Judah was judged. Judah saw that and said, Man, that must have been worth it. So we're going to do the same thing. Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart. And note this, but rather in deception declares the Lord. So this this is the exact same thing that these false teachers are trying to bring. They are already committing it, but they're trying to gain a foothold in the church and pollute it. We've talked about deception before, but it is a it is a fish hook, right? You dangle in front of you, you got some bait, you know, maybe a teaching or a benefit that sounds very enticing, that sounds like it would be a blessing even masquerading as grace itself, and members of the church are deceived and led astray by it. But that is just, that's just exemplifying the same pattern that was exhibited by Israel and Judah before, guess what? Before judgment. Catastrophic judgment on Jerusalem. So, the same, so history repeats itself in a tragic way yet again. That same judgment on them is looming. So we see the same kind of spiritual adultery and harlotry also in the book of Hosea. Very interesting, uh, very interesting tale regarding that, that Hosea takes a a wife for himself, a harlot, who eventually commits adultery on him. And what that does is that it illustrates in profound fashion the spiritual adultery and harlotry that Israel commits against Yahweh, commits against her God. So, we face the same challenge. The the challenge of, of being led astray by strange doctrine and committing spiritual adultery and harlotry against the Lord Jesus Christ. So these temptations are not confined to the Old Testament. They rear their ugly head today. And as the gospel spreads, as the kingdom of God advances, so will those challenges confront the church. And yet the church is not to shy away from them. With equal vigor, I would say, we confront those challenges head on and expose those false teachings, even if those around us don't understand it. And there will be some in the church who do not understand it, who, will not un- who do not understand the forcefulness with which we grapple against false doctrine and even the forcefulness with which we expose false teaching. And yet, God Himself, through the Apostle Peter, 
explains very clearly that this is a danger to the church. I think we're warned against such things. I was thinking of the, the book of Proverbs. Uh, Proverbs 6, 24 through 26. And, and, the, and, and the speaker here, the father, is explaining the purpose of giving his son instruction. And one of those things is this. To keep you from the evil woman. From the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Okay, like, Wow, we, we want to keep... We want to keep away from evil. Evil is bad. But then he says, Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. Right? The eyes full of adultery. So we think, yeah, evil is bad. We don't want to get mixed up with an adulteress, but, there's that, but there is something enticing, right? And in here, it's, it's the beauty. It's her beauty. It's that winking eye. But then he goes on to say this, verse 26, and this is the very thing that befell Israel as a whole. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Is not the church precious? Should not the church be precious in our own eyes, not only in in, in its teacher's eyes, but also the congregation? That the church, the body of Christ, was bought by the precious blood of Christ. Therefore, if we are precious to our Lord, we should be precious to one another and guard one another from the hunting adulteress, especially as expressed in the teaching and the example of false teachers. It's interesting what Job says, chapter 31, verses 9 through 12. If my heart has been enticed by a woman or I have lurked at my neighbor's doorway, may my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her. For that would be a lustful crime. Moreover, it would be an iniquity punishable by judges. For it would be fire that consumes to Abaddon and would uproot all my increase. So Job knows the threat. He knows the consequences. And so we have that warning. And so as we move on, we find even greater warnings, greater dangers. So they have eyes full of adultery, but eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Think about this imagery. Eyes of adultery that never cease from sin. So you sit there. Sit there for a while and, and, and count how long you can keep your eyes open without blinking. Pretty, pretty soon your eyes are going to get irritated. They're going to itch. They're going to turn red. And you're going to be dying to blink. Because it's uncomfortable. Your eyes need rest. Not so with the attitude of false teachers. Their eyes are always open because they're always looking for a way to sin. Their eyes never cease from sin. You would think, you would think that eventually they would get tired of it. They would grow weary of it. Oh wow, the church is really struggling. There's just sin and compromise everywhere. There's apostasy taking root. This is, this is bad. I think you get tired of sinning. You'd think that eventually shame would be present for this outright, outright wickedness. One would think, but in unbelief there is something energizing about sin that wants to keep perpetuating itself. It is, it is never satisfied by the destruction that it reaps. And so it never blinks. It is always at work trying to destroy the people of God. And that is why we can take such comfort in the fact that we have a God who never sleeps either. The Holy Spirit is always doing His work. The Holy Spirit is opposed to sin and the deeds of the flesh. 
And so the church can take great comfort in that, that the Holy Spirit is always working to strengthen us and to cultivate fruitfulness, to stand against the wickedness in our midst. And it does this, entices unstable souls. I think, I, I think the, uh, the meaning of this is that they prey on the immature. See, the Christian life is one to be characterized by stability. We have that sure foundation, right, of the apostles' doctrine, the gospel itself. We stand on the rock of Christ. There's nothing wrong with our foundation. Sometimes our legs are simply not strong. We are, each, each one of us at one point, immature in Christ. That's not necessarily wicked, but it's not a place we want to stay. We want to grow firm, right? It's what 2 Peter is all about. Growing firm. Increasing stability. Being able to weather the storms of, of persecution, of life's troubles, and of false teaching. So typically, the strategy of a false teacher is to go into a church and to entice unstable souls. Those who are perhaps, whose lives are already have some compromise. The immature. Those who are perhaps wishy-washy. The unstable. And they entice them. They draw them away. How, how important is it that the church then stands guard against its young ones? Against those who are new in the faith? Against those who are Afflicted by all manner of trials and tribulation. That's part of caring for one another. Going on in verse 14. Having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. A heart trained in greed. So this word for train comes from our modern word gym or gymnasium. This is What this means, of course, is that this, this, this level of deception is calculating. It's strategic. It is a honed skill. This is what posers do. Now, some of you in here, you like going to the gym. You like the pump. You like getting swole. You like training. You like investing that time. But you know who the poser in the gym is, if you've spent any amount of time there. It's not the dude who's super buff. It's the guy who skips leg day. That's the poser in the gym. You know what I'm talking about. It's the guy who skips leg day. He just spends all morning looking at himself and admiring himself from the waist up in the gym, but man, leg day comes, he's not going to get in there and do squats. No, he's going to keep working that upper body because that's the show muscle. That's what people are paying attention to. But what does he lack when he skips leg day? He lacks a foundation. He really is weak while pretending to be strong and imposing. And of course, if you know anything about modern bro science, if you train the legs, the rest of you grows faster. Your muscles grow faster if you train the legs well and often. If you have a, a strong foundation. But you see, the, you see the danger here. They look strong. They look able. They look trained and developed. But they have a wobbly foundation. You just take a twig and kneecap them, you know, and, <laughs> and they go down. Because they have no foundation in the Gospel. But what are we called to do? See, it's a, it's, it's, it's a training that doesn't result in any fruitfulness. It's being trained in sin, trained in deception. That's why they, they never settle down. They never, they have no, you see this, this imagery? They have no rest like we do. We have a rest in Christ. He is our Sabbath. But listen to what Paul says to Timothy. This is chapter 4. And if you went through our study in 1 Timothy, this will be familiar to you. In verse 6, 
in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of what? Of godliness. So there is a discipline. There is a, there is a gymnasium aspect to the Christian's life. But it's for the purpose of godliness, of being like God, of being like Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 8, For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. You see, this isn't, this is, this here is not spiritual showboating. This is, especially in the context of a pastor, this is your life on display. So let your discipline in the things of God be evident, especially in your knowledge and handling of the Word of God, but also for your care of the flock. And then he says in verse 9, Paul does it as a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. The false teacher does not have his hope fixed on the living God. He has his hope fixed on personal gain and personal fame and prominence. He wants to be the preeminent one. He wants the power. He wants the influence. And so he draws people to himself rather than to fix their hope on the living God. And of course, Paul ends with this. This is kind of sudden, but he says, accursed children. Now, of course, the curse, right? The fact that God curses others is a pretty prominent theme throughout Scripture. We actually see the curse first in the fall of man, that the ground is cursed so that it will not yield its fruit. When people are under the curse of God, it means that even while living, they are dead because they are under His condemnation. Certain judgment awaits. They are devoted, depending on the word used, they are devoted to destruction. And they may get away with much in this life, but as we've already read from Peter, their destruction is not asleep. Their judgment from long ago is not idle. And so, of course, what the church's recourse to do is, even while exposing, we still cry out to God for justice. We still cry out to God to avenge the church that has been afflicted by these false teachers. Think about it too. It's Galatians 3.13. We, you, know, you read about the curse of the law and that Christ, this is the beauty of the Gospel, Christ became a curse for us. Because as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Christ took upon Himself the curse of the law so that we might be children of the promise, children of the blessing by faith in Jesus Christ. So to be cursed means to be effectively cut off from the congregation. To be cut off from the people of God. See, Peter recognized this. God knows those who are His. So even while pretending to be part of of the new covenant community to be a partaker of the blessings of God, this person is really cut off. They are separate from the people of God. Listen to what Hebrews 6, 7 through 8 says. Now remember, Hebrews 6, 
especially verse 4, is an immensely difficult uh, passage, one of the most difficult, it is thought, in all of Scripture. Um, Talking about those who, again, appear to be saved and they have reaped all these benefits of the New Covenant community, and yet it turns out that they really do not belong to the community of God, and it's impossible at some point to renew them to repentance. Now listen to verse 7, Hebrews 6. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and produces vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. Now note verse 8. So we would say amen to that. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed. And it ends up being burned. So for a time, those who are among the community of God, right? it it seems like they are... They are good ground. There is going to be uh, good fruit that is yield because it drinks the rain. Think of the rain as God's blessings, maybe the ministry of His Word, all that pertains to life in Christ. And if you truly belong to Christ, when the Word of God ministers to you, there will be, as he says here, vegetation. You will have fruit in your life. But if the soil is bad, if it only yields thorns and thistles, it exposes this status of worthlessness and close to being cursed. See, here's the thing, is that if you truly belong to Christ, if you're truly a part of the new covenant community, when these rains fall on you, you will drink it up. You will, you will love it. You will be nourished by it. You will desire more. And you will produce fruit. But even if all that same rain falls upon you, and you're receiving it Sunday after Sunday, you're going to all of the Bible studies. Right? You're even out there pounding the pavement, telling people about Jesus. But if in your heart, you despise the Word of God when it comes to bear, you will only yield thorns and thistles. And that's what we keep saying. When it comes to being a poser, you can only pose for so long before your status, your identification as a pretender is made crystal clear. And on that day, it is shown to be worthless and close close to being cursed. And so with that in mind, we come to verse 15. This This apostasy is illustrated by Balaam, and I'm pretty sure we can get through it today. So we'll so we'll keep moving. But this is the correction part. This is the correction part. So verse 15 uh, and 16, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, for he received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a mute donkey, speaking with a voice of a man, restrained the madness of a prophet. So, keep in mind, this is where we enter into a lot of a lot of typology as we've already mentioned i think at the very beginning of this study second peter is a lot like deuteronomy deuteronomy being the second law just before moses went to mount nebo to die he gave the second law he preached to the congregation of israel in like fashion just as the apostle peter knowing that he is about to die writes this to the church so there's some parallels here between Israel's wilderness wanderings and what the church is enduring in Peter's time. And of interesting note is the number of years in view. Israel wandered the wilderness for about 40 years. 
And they were tested, and they were tried before entering the promised land. Now here is the church in a wilderness of its own. A time of testing, a time of apostasy, a time of twisted gospels. And this time of testing is roughly about 40 years from when Christ ascended in about A.D. 30 to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. So you have a very remarkable, and I don't think uh, uh, in, uh, a consequential parallel. I mean, it's very, it, it, this, isn't, this isn't coincidental. It's very purposeful, and I think teaches us a good lesson. So when it comes to Balaam, the same thing is, the same warning is issued in Jude 11 when he says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, okay, Cain who killed his brother, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. The error of Balaam, and we will figure out what that is. So it says, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam. Talking about the false prophets. So before he even mentions Balaam, Peter talks about what they have done. They have forsaken the right way, and they have gone astray. So very simply put, right way, this, this literally means straight. Straight as opposed to crooked, not, not right. You know, like you think in political terms, right and, as opposed to left. This is straight as opposed to crooked. Now, this is a very common Old Testament motif between crooked and straight, right? The, 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 the straight path and the, the crooked path. That word for crooked is used in the Old Testament as iniquity, that which is bent over, that which is out of shape, as opposed to what is straight and upright in its proper shape. So we follow the straight way of God. And so what has happened is they have forsaken the right way for a crooked way, and they have gone astray in the sense that they are misled. This word for gone astray is from the same word from which we get planet. We'll probably unpack that a little more in a later study. But the word planet means basically to wander, to roam, right? There's no distinct distinct set path. This kind of tells us that the false teacher sort of does what is right in his own eyes. He's, He's opportunistic. And as those opportunities come for him to exploit the people of God, he takes them. But by and large, akin to Satan in Job chapter 1, he's just a wanderer. Goes throughout the land, wandering around, looking for someone to take advantage of. And this person is crooked, and they lead others to this crooked way. And then it says, he follows and know that this following of Balaam's way is not merely by, by curiosity. There is, not a, there is not some naive innocence to this. This is purposeful. There is, this speaks of commitment, an imitation of a leader. It speaks of compliance. This, simply speaking, church, is letting Balaam have his way. That you are following someone in lockstep. And though you are deceived, you think that you are following the path of truth. And note, even, the way, even this here, the way of Balaam. So look at your Bibles again. The way of Balaam, son of Beor. So yes, Balaam, as, as, as referenced in the Old Testament, is the son of Beor. And I think what a New Testament translators did here was, was maybe from their own minds, correct that. But what is, what is used commonly in manuscripts is Basor. But in the, in the New Testament manuscripts, he is the son of Basor. And what they think is going on is that Peter is using a play on words because the Old Testament word for flesh is basar. So this would fit in with the context of 2 Peter. Remember, Peter talks about 
sensuality, about falling prey to the flesh, being fleshly, falling into the trap of fleshly desires. And in a very real sense, Balaam is a son of Basar. He is a son of the flesh. He is a product of the old order that is passing away and being overcome by the gospel. Right? And what we talked about last Sunday was that false teachers are trying to deceive those who are a part of the church and get them to grasp onto this old failing order. And one of the ways they do that is to try to coax them back into the ways of apostate Judaism rather than trusting in the Holy Spirit to complete the very work that he started. So yes, Balaam is a son of the flesh and he is trying to win other sons of the flesh to his cause. So let's get through this narrative. If you want to turn there, it's fine. Uh, it's Numbers. The book of Numbers, we read this. It talks about Balaam's interaction with, with the donkey. And we'll be in here probably for the remainder of, of the time. And of course, in chapter 22 of Numbers, there's so much more to this than we're going to be able to cover today, but that's okay. Numbers 22, Balak sends for Balaam. Why? Because Balak fears the, fears the congregation of Israel, and so he sends for Balaam. Balaam is basically an Old Testament version of a wizard. He, he is called upon as a prophet to pronounce curses on people, among other things. So Balak hires him for this. And so, of course, when we come down to verse 21 of chapter 22, so he agrees, he agrees to the terms of Balak, and then it says, Balaam arose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the leaders of Moab. And so here's where the narrative picks up. But God was angry because he was going. Well, why was God angry? Because he was going to curse Israel. Israel, whom God had blessed. Israel, whom God dwells with. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. Now he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, the donkey turned off from the way and went into the field. But Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back into the way. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path of the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. So there's nowhere to go. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pressed herself to the wall <laughs> and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn to the right hand or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down other, under Balaam, so Balaam was angry and struck the donkey with his stick. I mean, where's Peto when this is going on? And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Then Balaam said to the donkey, I don't know what he's doing talking to animals, but because you have made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. The donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all, the, all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And of course, Balaam, you know, donkey's talking to him. No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord. Now note here, the angel of the Lord, most likely a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ. So the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand and he bowed all the way to the ground. 
So now Balaam's scared. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary because your way was contrary to me. Oh man, that is, that is something. If nothing else scares you in life, it should be that. Where God Himself appears and says, I'm opposed to you. I am against you. See, that's the only thing scarier than having Satan as our adversary is that Jesus is your adversary and tells you so. Posers be warned. All right, where were we? Okay, uh, let's see. I am against you, right. So he says, if she had not turned aside from me, I would surely have killed you just now and let her live. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you were standing in the way against me. Now then, if it is displeasing to you, I will turn back. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but you shall speak only the word which I tell you. So Balaam went along with the leaders of Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the Arnon border, at the extreme end of the border. Then Balak said to Balaam, Did I not urgently send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? I am, really unable, am I really unable to honor you? So Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come now to you. Am I able to speak anything at all? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I shall speak. And Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath, whose oath. Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep and sent some to Balaam and the leaders who were with him. Then it came about in the morning that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal, and he saw from there a portion of the people. So, of course, that is when he goes up. He goes up anyway because in his mind he is going to curse Israel. And why is he doing this? Well, unrighteous gain, because he is going to be paid to curse Israel, God's blessed people. So already, he is against, he is against God. He is against the angel of the Lord. And so, the angel of the Lord says, no, you're not going to say what you were normally going to say. You're going to say what I put into your mouth. And so, Balaam does, does just as much. He pronounces a blessing on Israel. He blesses them. And more than, more than on one occasion, for the wages of unrighteousness. But note here, it says that a donkey restrained the madness of a prophet. Of course, Balaam was pretty angry when, when this happened. He said he, himself, he was ready to kill. He was ready to kill the donkey. Of course, it says madness. Now, I don't think Balaam here is literally insane. But some of the most profound insanity, mark this, some of the most profound insanity is not found in straitjackets and rooms with padded walls, but in the insanity that deliberately, willingly, having even processed it mentally, rebels against God. Balaam is out of his mind precisely because his sin was so deliberate. This madness was to curse the people of God. That's madness. That is madness to curse the blessed people of God. It is madness to lead them into the sins out of which they were rescued. And what is more, it is pure madness that the church of the living God would come to a point where we give any quarter to, to a clown like Balaam who would come in and try to be a curse upon the people. Now we understand in an ironic way that Balaam was used to bless the people of God. But that is not, of course, why Peter primarily uses Balaam as an illustration. Balaam is used as an illustration because of the unrighteous wages he sought in his 
goal to stand on the, on the mountain and curse Israel. To curse God's people. Some more insight here from Thomas Schreiner. It says this, The donkey's complaints were a rebuke because he perceived the spiritual reality, that is, the threat of death, while Balaam the prophet was oblivious to the danger. So pause there. So in that sense, I think blinded by their own greed, false teachers are oblivious to the danger, this curse that hangs over them when they come in and try to divide and conquer and lead astray the people of God. So going on with this quote, the prophet who presumably read the entrails of animals to prophesy was bested by one of his own animals who discerned the things of God better than he. And there's a lesson in that for, for us. You know, I mean, if you are going to come into the church and act like an ass, sometimes it will take an ass to show you what you're really acting like. And that is precisely what happened to Balaam. Even though Balaam ended up blessing Israel in his heart, he was still rebelling against God. And of course, he was killed by the sword. Right? The angel of the Lord stayed his sword only for Balaam later on to be killed by it. We find he was rebuked. He was rebuked clearly. He, he, depending, on, depending on your translation, there is an indication that Balaam even felt conviction for this. But conviction is not a sure sign of salvation. But we find he was rebuked for his iniquity. He was rebuked for his crookedness. But listen, but listen to this. John Gill says, which, which was not merely going along with the messengers of Balak, for he had leave from the Lord to do so, but going along with them with the desire to curse Israel when it was the will of God he should go and bless them in order to get Balak's money so that his governing iniquity was covetousness which led him to other sins. And for this, he was rebuked by the angel. And Balaam, unfortunately, did much else besides that. Not only did he go with the intent of, of cursing Israel, but we find even in uh, chapter 25 of Numbers that while Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. See, that influence, that, again... Belief being unyoked with unbelief. Right? The people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. And then we get into that whole episode of Phineas running a guy through, because no one else would stand against this scandalous harlotry that Israel was was then engaged in. We've already talked about Balaam a little bit in our study in 2 Peter. But there is a huge problem there because of their willingness to join themselves via marriage in rebellion against God. Joining themselves with idolaters. Joining themselves with unbelief. unbelief taking them into their, own, into their own camp. Basically acting like they are one of them. And so, of course, far be it from the church to do such a thing, partaking of the doctrine of Balaam. Even the Lord Jesus warns His churches in the book of Revelation against that very thing, that some have, have gone and followed the doctrine of Balaam. And so now they're committing sexual immorality. They're eating meat sacrificed to idols. 
They're wandering. You know, we've heard of the, think about the, this great, amazing economic recovery plan called the Build Back Better plan. I don't know if you've looked into it. It's amazing. This is called the Beating Back Balaam plan. This is the call of the church to continually stand against the doctrine of Balaam where the presence of this doctrine is leading people into spiritual adultery. And I would say sexual immorality is only, is only one um, symptom of it. But holistically, the doctrine of Balaam, you know, has pervaded and gaining root in the body of Christ when we are basically covenanting ourselves with any form of unbelief, with any manifestation of the old order that is passing away, with any expression against which, which Christ is currently warring via the gospel. So I believe the warning is clear, the warning is strong, and the warning is dire. Especially since we do continue to persevere in an age where I think increasingly the church is being lambasted, called to account, accused of being unloving because some take a very strong stance against false teachers. And unfortunately, that accusation is coming, I think, most prominently from those who claim to follow Christ. And yet, we find that one of the strongest evidences of a love for God is hating the things that God hates. If you love what God loves, you will hate what He hates. Therefore, church, you must hate anything which stands against the advancement of the Gospel. Anything that twists it. We got a power problem? (laughs) Looks like we don't. Yes, yes. But in light of that, interestingly enough, that completes my sermon for the day. (laughs) Who knew? God works in mysterious ways, does He not? That was my five-minute warning. So yes. Um, But yeah, so anyway, we find the correction there, and that's what we want to see clearly, is that God in His faithfulness sometimes in the most unlikely of ways. Sometimes when a man is too cowardly to speak, he will find a way to speak through something or someone else to make his truth known and to put false teachers in their place. So that warns us against cowardice when it comes to standing up against the deceitfulness of false teachers. We don't want to be led astray. We don't want to align ourselves with what Peter calls accursed children. We are the blessed, right? We are the redeemed. So let us act as such in light of the redeeming work of Christ and the ongoing perfecting work of His Spirit. So once again, uh, plenty plenty more to say, but I trust that that is sufficient for today. So let's commit ourselves in light of the truth of this text uh, to the care of our Savior. Father, thank You again for uh, Your love and faithfulness to us. We thank You for this text, we thank you that um, we, can, we can learn even from false prophets like Balaam, who though going full steam ahead planning to curse your people, failed. He blessed them instead. And Lord, I pray that um, we would stand guard. We would not align ourselves with the doctrine of Balaam, which we know leads people astray. We, wanna, we want to 
not wander on the crooked path, but walk on the straight path. The path of righteousness. The path of goodness. The path of all grace. That's what we stand on. We stand on grace. We stand in it. And we can entrust ourselves to a good Father, to a faithful Lord who who supplies us that grace no matter what time. In every need, Lord, we are sustained by it. We are lifted up. We are strengthened. And so even this morning, Father, we do not want to get bogged down by this potential looming threat of false teachers, but may it be a lesson for us to, to fall at Your mercy, to prevail upon Your grace, and to be able to continue standing firm in the truth. See ourselves watered by the Word, strengthened for every good work, and not, not falling prey to the devices of the enemy. Lord, we, we already have an adversary. We don't want You to be our adversary. We don't want You to stand with us, rather, or stand against us. Rather, we want to stand with You to be found faithful, especially in the days where You're pruning Your church, where You are permitting uh, many different forms of, of testing. We want to be found faithful and uh, spotless and without blemish before You. And we can only do that with You, Lord. We cannot do that standing in our own strength and wisdom, uh, but only standing uh, in You. So please, Lord, we, we trust that that prayer is pleasing to You, uh, that You desire to answer it in the affirmative and, and bless us in that manner. Uh, in all this, Lord, we are thankful for what You continue to do in our midst. And most of all, we are thank you, thankful for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our Good Shepherd. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.